All right, episode 21. This is going to be epic. I have with me today none other than Mr. Mr. Chris Murray. Chris Murray is a legendary Canadian ska performer. Started off uh, with uh, King Apparatus out of Toronto and I believe London uh, as well. And uh, later uh, had a, an incredible solo, solo career and still plays all over the place. And uh, yeah, so we get to hang out today. So I'm super excited. And um, don't forget that uh, there's a virtual tip jar link uh, under the video. And uh, that's uh, for the uh, Be A Producer program. Whether you tip uh, 25 cents, 50 cents, a dollar or more, or whatever you can spare, um, you'll be accredited as the producer of the next episode. And that being said, today's episode is brought to you by Jane M. Jordan. Thank you very much for your support, Jane. And uh, let's get it on. All right. Only thing is the aesthetics of it. I know, right? <laughs> You're looking good, man. You look all tanned. Thanks. Well, you know, lots of sun down here. Well, where is down here? Uh, Los Angeles. Okay, that's what I thought, but I didn't want to jump the gun on that. Uh, it's funny, I was listening to a bunch of your old recordings this morning. I went back to the King App days. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, in those days, like you guys were based out of London, Ontario, and Toronto, and around that area, right? So the history of that, uh, I grew up in Toronto. I went to Western in London. And it was while I was in school, the band started. And the people from the band, Mitch lived in Mississauga. Sam lived in Waterdown, which is like close to uh, Hamilton. Right, right. So, the, the really greater Toronto area kind of thing. Um, so the band formed in London. And after like the first year of it, Sam and I were finished school and Mitch had one more year of school. And at that time we were just taking, taking it for fun. It was not really uh, something we were intending to do professionally. So for the year that Mitch was finishing his school, you know, we played in London two or three times, probably a couple of Toronto shows, some Hamilton shows, really pretty cash. And uh, then when Mitch graduated, I think that's when we decided as a band that we were gonna focus more energy on building the band because we were all back in the Toronto area with uh, time and motivation for it. Right, right. And I've been down, I've been in Los Angeles since the 90s. Oh shit! Okay, yeah. What what drew you to you know to live in uh, in Los Angeles? Like, uh, what was the, the connection before that? Well, I started coming here with King Apparatus, and uh, then I met my ex-wife on tour, and she moved to L.A., and that kept me here. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> so, what? How do these kids from London and Toronto? get into ska music, I mean, especially in the, in the times, you know what I mean? Because I, if I'm not mistaken, like we're talking late eighties uh, about, you know what I mean? Like uh, it wasn't King everywhere then. No, King Apparatus started in 87. And I would say that, um, no, it definitely, it was just 87. I met Sam at the end of my third year of four in college. And through that summer, we jammed with his brother playing bass and this guy, Jer, playing drums. 
and we didn't have the name King Apparatus yet, but it was when the school year started in September and we were back in London that uh, we put the band together. So as a context, at the, in the 80s, Two-Tone was the, the entry point for so many people for ska music. And it really wasn't that far in the past. Uh, in Toronto, it had a, a pretty strong impact, I would say. When you're talking two-tone in that manner, are you thinking like madness specials? Uh... Yeah, for me, the, the label two-tone had a stable of acts that released through it. Uh, sometimes, so the specials were the primary act and they released for madness, the selector, the beat. Um, Bad manners was, is termed a two-tone act because they were definitely of the moment and they were featured in the Dance Craze movie, as were the Body Snatchers. Right, uh, right. And, and then there were several very minor acts that I think had one or two singles on Two-Tone. So when I say Two-Tone, I use it in the sense of those were the bands that when I grew up were what I knew Scott to be. And I think now people speak of it more stylistically. Oh, they have a Two-Tone sound, something like that. Right. That makes perfect so, sense. I was a big fan. And within King Apparatus, I was the big ska fan. Everybody had heard of it to some degree. But when we were uh, really a covers band, as every band starts, before we had original material, we played all kinds of stuff. And I remember we played Psycho Killer. We played a couple of REM tunes that Sam sang. We had a couple of uh, Ramones tunes and Peter Tosh and Bob Marley and Maytals and Clash tunes. And, but I was the guy who was always pushing, hey, let's do this specials tune. And I was a singer, so I was motivated to like, get the tunes I wanted to sing in the mix. Uh, so that's how we formed as a ska band. And really, it wasn't until, as I said, Mitch was finished school and we were all back in the Toronto area that we consciously decided, oh, we're going to be a ska band. Right, A couple right. of years in, I'd been writing some songs for the band. And at that point, I was the only person who had presented a song to the band. And all of my songs were ska or reggae. And at the time, we decided, well, we're going to be more serious about the band. It was dis discussed that, well, we'll need to focus on the original material because a cover band can only go so far or has has a direction of career path which was not what we were actually looking for so at that point we made a conscious decision i'd say a couple of years into the band that we were going to be a ska band and focus on original material we had played ska from day one along with other styles but at a certain couple of years in we were very uh focused and consciously made a decision to be a ska band in those years, like as far as Canada goes, did you know any other Canadian ska bands like in there the were, 80s? There were very few. I would say the first ska band I was aware of that was Canadian were the Villains, based out of Vancouver, who were actually British expats who had immigrated to Canada. And they had a, an EP called Life of Crime. And they had a, the... They had a song, Life of Crime, 
they had a, the big song for them was called Ska Music. Wow. An anthem. And I'll have to so track that, that down. I've never heard them before. Definitely the stuff is on YouTube. Cool. Then they had, they had an album. They got signed to Anthem Records, which was a Toronto-based indie label. And at that point, the villains, I think, tried... They kept the ska, but they really tried to become more a pop-friendly band. Because mm -hmm. they had this label that was going to put them forth. When the first EP came out, they were all skinheaded out. And they had a tune... I think it was just called Skinheads of London Town or something. And on the front cover was this skinhead who had a gun to his own head. Shit. It was like it was a very like strong Yeah, they skinhead. got heavy fast. <laughs> so they kinda like yeah, well they started that way and they came from England, those guys. But then when they got signed, they got a little more pop friendly and glossy. And I think they only had one album for Anthem and it didn't really get traction. Right, a right. band that a band that I would say was Canada's ska band, as Canadians would perceive at the time, were the Hopping Penguins. You heard Where of are them? they from? No, I haven't. Originally from, I believe, Halifax. Right. And they moved to Toronto. And I remember seeing them. I saw both the villains and the Hopping Penguins at Western when I was a college student. And... Um, so that would have been 84, 85, 86, 87. That was when I was in college. And Hopping Penguins had moved to Toronto because if you're a maritime band, you need to move to Toronto. There's just no, <laughs> right? people, no people out there. And they were one of those bands. There were a lot of these types of bands in the 80s that they played a mishmash of sounds. They would have ska and reggae in the mix, but also funk and little rock uh anything that was going to move the dance floor mm -hmm. i guess a party band a dance oriented party band was really what they were but they played a bunch of english beat tunes uh and a couple specials tunes they had a sax player so the english beat stuff really suited their sound and they worked hard they got in a van and they drove around canada playing all the time so i would say that's wild 80s, man I mean, th this is so cool because uh, you're one of the people that I knew I could ask this to, you know, because you started in Canada uh, right. so young. And I don't think a lot of people know this, you know what I mean? And like here I am, you know, I've been playing in ska in Canada for like over 10 years. I think I know shit, but no, <laughs> I had to ask you that question so badly. And I'm not surprised that there is ska coming out of Halifax because the first people I ever heard playing ska in Canada were from Halifax. Okay, you know, it, they always conquer? seem to have some. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was uh, someone, uh, Dana Frazzle. Um, but that was like back, like they started like, you know, late 70s, uh, okay. you know, and did, did some stuff, uh, even put out vinyl and stuff like that. And like people that I grew up with around my family, you know, but outside of that, I didn't really know. But it always seems to either come from Halifax and like you say, they have to move, you know, to, to, to go somewhere. Yeah. But there's some connection there, which isn't that surprising when you look at the history of the Maritimes and Halifax in particular, right? With immigration mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's definitely. really Post interesting England. Canadian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, you know, for, con for context of the eighties, a song like mirror in the bathroom was a radio hit. You it's, and now people look back, though, that's eighties music. They, it's yeah. not technically a Scott tune. Even it's a, the beat were one of those bands that had a variety of styles, 
a bunch I would of say with madness as well, right? With the because yeah. their videos got so much play with them, you know, with their train line dancing and stuff. Yes, I mean at the time, one step beyond. It wasn't a radio hit in Canada, but you heard uh, mess, uh, "Mirror in the Bathroom" definitely, mm -hmm. and the specials had some some hits that people knew. Everybody kind of knew a "Message to You" and "Nightclub," stuff like that. "Concrete Jungle." So these were songs that were in the popular awareness at the time in the 80s overall yeah and uh another band that was active in the 80s that for me was very in influential was based in windsor and they were they went as bfa which they never officially said what that stands for <laughs> but so those guys formed when they were in high school and then Later, you remember a band called One? No, but I heard of it. Okay. So BFA started in Windsor when everybody in the band was in high school. And then the singer and singer went to law school in Toronto. Or they, they went different places for college. And the guitarists went to Western. So they would be playing... Um, at call the office right right they would do a friday saturday a few times a year and they were a great band they were more reggae rock they would play like you know uh, at the time peter tosh johnny be good mm -hmm. that wailing guitar oh i did that it, had man. that yep. stuff going on <laughs> but they did play some um specials tunes and english beat and had a couple of original tunes that were ska so at the time, if you were a Scott fan and there was a band playing any Scott at all, you were like, wow. Yeah, man. And uh, generally, people would also label a band a ska band if they played any ska. Because if you're playing a bunch of stuff like, oh, they play ska. People didn't really have a grasp of what ska music was the way they do now. But it's like, oh, it's upbeat and dancey. That's how people thought of it. Like message, uh, Mirror in the Bathroom. Technically, that's not ska music. The rhythm of it isn't. Exactly. But, but we, it still happens, we, right? I mean, in the sense, how many times do you have to say what your music is and you're like, oh, it's rock and roll with horns. <laughs> true. Well, at the time, that was the, what people identified Scott as, as mm -hmm. did I. Now, the other half of how did we get into this music back then. So in Toronto, it is the third largest Jamaican community outside Jamaica after London and New York. So we had a lot of Jamaicans in a section of town, especially like St. Clair and Bathurst, St. Clair and Dufferin. That was like Jamaica town. And I don't know how many bodies there were in, in that community, but there was sufficient numbers that they would bring Jamaican artists up to Toronto for a one-off performance. Then they'd go back to Jamaica. And if you were into Jamaican music, you know, I can't remember the first time I heard reggae, to be honest, um, because it was not something that was so obscure and unheard of in Toronto, because mm -hmm. there were bands, reggae bands of Torontonians, a mixture of Jamaicans or Caribbean immigrants and local people playing reggae music. And it wasn't that uncommon. And reggae, you know, by, by the 80s, Bob Marley had made reggae really well known. Absolutely. So... Um, I was very fortunate. I, something drew me to reggae and ska 
one of those X factors thing. Why does somebody like heavy metal? Why does someone like blues? Who knows? Some neuron fired when I heard it. I'm like, dopamine. <laughs> <in> it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> something like that happened. So as somebody who was into that music, I didn't realize how lucky I was until King Apparatus started touring because I was able to see a lot of original artists from the 60s performing at club shows in Toronto where the audience was primarily Jamaicans. So right. not only was the shows themselves were rare, the, these artists weren't going to Montreal, they weren't going to New York even because mm -hmm. getting into America is much more difficult, even back pre 9-11. Um, so that really helped me solidify that as the meat and potatoes of what I listened to. And as there was a Jamaican community in Toronto, even uh, certain Jamaican artists were living in Toronto, like Jackie Mitu. You know Jackie Mitu? No, I don't. So he was the keyboardist in Scatolites. Oh, and I think okay. he was 15 or 16 when they formed. At a certain point, he was the musical director for Studio One for Coxon. So they would have, you know, auditions and he would be involved with auditioning artists. And once somebody got past a certain level, then it's like, okay, Coxon, check this guy out. And when charts had to be created for the backing band to back the singer, he would be the studio, uh, the band leader, I guess. Yeah, of the yeah studio but he was the bands. one with the knowledge there. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the Studio One recording setting, he was the musical director for an era. Later, Leroy Sibbles was the musical director from Heptones, mm -hmm. who also moved to Toronto. And Stranger Cole lived in Toronto for a while. Alton Ellis lived in Toronto. Oh, wow, I had no idea. At the time, I was just, I didn't have the full grasp of it myself, mm -hmm. who these people from the 60s were because I was getting into reggae and ska in the late 70s and the 80s. And at the time, it was pre-CD. Well, or CDs were just coming in at the end of the 80s. Right. But there was not this wave of, we've opened the vaults and we're reissuing everything on CD or now on vinyl or whatever. It was almost impossible to find Jamaican ska in recordings. It was only going to be vinyl or somebody had taped something and you could dub their tape. But the releases had only been vinyl in Jamaica back in the day or in Britain. Uh, so it was, there were record stores in Toronto that were for the Jamaican communities. Stranger Cole ran a record store in Kensington Market. Oh, wow. Cool. And so these stores would have Jamaican releases and People like Stranger Cole and Leroy Sibbles, they had strong ties to Jamaica, Jackie Mitu. So they would, okay, we're going to Jamaica, we're going to bring you back some records and we'll sell them to our Jamaican people here. And those people knew what was going on because they stayed in touch with the old country, all of that stuff. So to, to sum it up, being in Toronto was a really fortunate situation for someone to get into ska and reggae because I would say at the time, mentality of British heritage in Toronto was very strong. Uh, there were a lot of people who had moved from Britain more than say when you go to Winnipeg or Saskatoon or Quebec. 
of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Two Tone hit, there was a, a good audience for it already because punk had connected. People were listening to British music in Toronto more than they were listening to a lot of uh, American stuff. You know, things that were happening in Detroit for the African-American community that were big hits in America, that community didn't exist in Toronto to consume that music. So we didn't hear, you know, we'd hear like Rick James or something like yeah. that, <laughs> you know, a super freak. And that was it. Um, it's really though, interesting you say that though, because like, you know, growing up where I did, like I grew up in Ontario, but right on the border of Quebec and Ontario. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's true. Like we had all the, the British punk, not the American punk so much, except for dead Kennedy's got through there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause they were so and, early. And, and Ramon. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, you can stretch out and say, like, charge GBH or get into these other ones, but not really that much. You know, I mean, there was maybe a handful of people in Canada that knew them. <laughs> but it's right. crazy. Yeah, the, the British influence uh, with the two-tone, but also, you know, because uh, I, I grew up with a lot of uh, people from, uh, well, Jamaicans in Ottawa uh, as well, which had a fairly large, uh, you know, considering how big the city is, uh, uh, community yeah. as well, you know. But I didn't have access to all the records. It was more just the live music. You know, I mean, that's why I love talking with you because you have a, you have this history yeah, and a great memory. I gotta say, by the way, way better than mine. <laughs> Where you're able some to things say I remember. Story. Well, this is great because you know these stories, if they're not told, do disappear. You know, it's his story. I feel that. So, you know, just to go on a tangent, recently I've noticed during the quarantine time, a lot of people have had time to go through their vaults, whether they had photos or tracks or whatever and so there's in my online realm a handful of people or groups that have started instagrams or facebook's and now they're putting out photos from the la rocksteady scene from the 90s like wow i haven't seen those things since the days of message board pre-facebook yeah Uh, Those things got posted at the time on message boards, but I don't think I even had an email address until this millennium. (laughs) Uh, I love it. But uh, the point of that was they put one crew posted this show poster where it had go Jimmy go from Hawaii Mm -hmm. was doing a show in LA and a show in Riverside on this poster. And Chris Murray combo was main support at the LA show and they said, Oh, the show is, was 2001. And I thought about it. Um, I'm still a little uncertain who was playing with me because blue beat lounge started in 2003. And when that started, there was no active Chris Murray combo. I was playing solo for the first four or five months of it. And then Ben, the drummer, the original drummer in the combo started just jamming. So we did some stuff as a two piece. And then Jeff who plays, Bass in Agrolites was our first bass player to join. So in August 2003 was the first time the three of us played as Chris Murray Combo. So I'm like, oh, this can't be right. This 2001. And they're like, no, we have it in these records. And, we're, and then somebody else is like, no, it had to be. And I'm like, wow, I guess it, it's true. So in the same way, without those people, my own personal history would be lost because my memory is not mm-hmm. perfect either. <laughs> That's it, so, right? <clears throat> but it's really cool. I mean, you've recorded with King Apparatus as just uh, your solo albums 
um, with the uh, combo as well and Blue Beat. Am I missing uh, anyone in her? I did one album with Slackers called the right, called right. Slackness. Mm-hmm. Um, Fantastic album, by the way. Ah, oh, thanks. Yeah, that man. was that was a fun experience. Uh, I'm trying to think. I did when I worked with that. I mentioned the band One. I did right. one album with them because, as I mentioned, their singer went into law. So mm-hmm. he, they, they got out there and they got in a. They had some good success. They got signed to some label. Canadian label, they got in a van and they worked hard. And the, the guitarist is a medical doctor, the singer is a lawyer. So they had real careers, real, real, real career paths laid in front of them. <laughs> yeah, man. And, uh, but they were also putting their heart into the band and they were the two key guys of the band. So at one point the band, the singer said, I have to, not be on the road so much because it's been several years since I finished school and I need to article or I'm just going to be losing all this knowledge that I have. And that's going to get in the way of a bigger picture. So Mm -hmm. they took, they said, we're going to take a year off of touring hard. And the guitarist Rob had a home studio with ADATs. Right. I love ADATs. So they had done a lot of work on an album in Rob's home studio. And it was a really nice album. Uh, then the singer realized that even the time commitment to be involved with making the album was getting in his way as far as articling. And he wasn't mm-hmm. able to handle both things. So he had to withdraw from the band. And he was the singer from BFA. So I had known these guys in B- from BFA before one was even a band. By that time, I guess... I. I started working with them for that album in 95, but I would have met those guys as early as 85. So I'd known them for 10 years. And that singer's name was Chris also. So Chris had to withdraw and they came to me and they're like, uh, King Apparatus had stopped playing already in 95. I hadn't had the first release on Moon yet, which came in early 96. So I had some time. I was in Toronto and they said, hey, this is what's up. Chris had to leave. We're like a lot of the way through this album. So how about, you know, if you're into it, get involved, we'll do a little rewriting with you on the songs. Um, and we'll record you as the singer on the album. We'll do the release and we'll do some touring and see what goes on from there. Right. Um, so at the time I was a big fan of one as I was a big fan of BFA. I would say BFA was the band that, I went out to see religiously as a huge fan, just a little like high school, college kid (laughs) bar band, occasional bar band from Windsor. But that's the beautiful times, man. That's the beautiful time. That sparked in me the real fire. I want to have a band. Mm -hmm. And King Apparatus has a tune, Five Good Reasons. Right. So that's the saga of me at a BFA show I call the office in London when I was in college. <laughs> and on that occasion, I had a few beers and I got tossed out of call the office. And what that happens, happens. <laughs> what happened was I got up on stage cause I wanted to like sing along and the bouncer was like, Hey, get off the stage. And I don't even rem- remember the specific moment of what happened, but I guess I got back on stage one too many times and they're like, okay, you're out. So, <laughs> That 
anyway, those I did an album with one. It's funny you uh, say that because the last time I saw you, I think it was uh, me and Matt Smasher that jumped on stage and we were singing Home With You. Okay. No one kicked you out? <laughs> no one kicked me out. In fact, I think we had a bunch of beers after. I'm sure. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot about how I um, got to know Ska in the 80s and reggae and what was happening in the 80s, uh, what bands were active. I'm trying to think of other bands. There was another band that was uh, important in Canada in the 80s into the 90s called Roots Roundup. Yes, out of yes. Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And again, they were like one of those bands. They were a little more like granola hippie in there uh, as people. They were West, West Coast. Coasters. Exactly. They really were. And, um, but they played a, a variety of ska, reggae, funk, party music. And they were a great live band. Uh, the, the drummer, Barry, this is like Canadian arcane history. The drummer, Barry, I think he was the oldest guy in the band. But he had, you know, Art Bergman? No. Uh, Art Bergman was uh, a key guy in the Vancouver punk scene back in the early, you know, and he had a band that was a three-piece. He was a singer and guitarist. Later, he had a couple of albums on what, the same label Jane Sibbery used to release on. Uh, Something Street, I think it was called. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, so that's why it's called Cayman Don't Know Shit. <laughs> okay. So Art Bergman had a band called The Young Canadians. And they didn't last long. But he was the singer, guitarist, writer of the group. But Barry, right, right. who was the drummer in uh, Roots Roundup, had been the drummer in Young Canadians. And so I was blown away at that, you know. And these are, these are acts that were, you know, contemporary of DOA, no means no. Mm -hmm. um, That's it, it's wild. I mean, like, just you know, people use words like how the scene is incestuous, but I don't see it like that. I mean, if you put a bunch of musicians, you know, constantly together, people will say, "Hey, I want to make something with this guy," or you know, you get these connections with people. You well, know, one thing ends and a new thing starts. Well, that's it. And I mean, like, so you you transitioned out of King Apparatus and like, like said, you, you joined all these other things, but now we're into the nineties, I guess. And in the nineties, is that about when you started traveling way more? Well, I'll say this King Apparatus started in 87. Mm -hmm. I believe we started hitting the road. I think we had a van by hey. 1990 <laughs> and our agent at the time was this guy, RJ, who was originally from the rock but then was in Halifax, then moved to Toronto. And yeah. uh, you know The Rock? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he had connections in Halifax. So I think the first time we, well, we probably, the first time we left the province would have been to go to Montreal. Mm -hmm. But the first time we actually did a tour beyond, you know, a day's drive away, we went out to Halifax and we played I can't remember the name of the club. A it was long a, day drive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we played a couple of things in New Brunswick on the way and on the way back. It's a long time ago. Would have been like 1990, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, Well, they still so have the venues out there then because like we stopped going out east and I, I, I'm really sad about it because I used to love that. We'd always do the mm. Fredericton, Halifax, Moncton yeah. weekends, you know? But uh, right now the venues just don't exist like they used yeah. to. Uh, that sucks. 
Yeah, man. So in 1990, King Apparatus started touring. Our final tour, like, I don't know when we started touring in the U.S., but we'd always been going in and doing Buffalo and, you know, close stuff. But 90, by 93, we did three tours in California. Uh, oh, right and, on. And two of those were national tour. No, no. One of them was a national tour that included California. Two were more West Coast oriented. So we did a tour with Toasters up the West Coast in the beginning of 93. Or maybe around May of 93, we did West Coast stuff with Skank and Pickle. Mm -hmm. And I think we did some Southwest stuff, including Utah with them as well. And they'd come up and done stuff with us in Toronto. And we'd done stuff with uh, Toasters in Southern Ontario, Montreal. Then probably like August, we did um, a, a national tour with Dancehall Crashers. And we did a California run right before that that was put to this one of the singers for dancehall crashers at least rogers was the manager of hepcat mm -hmm. back for many years and she's like i believe i haven't seen her for a long time but i think she went into the music industry full time she was a business mind for sure and so she put together the california swing for us which was awesome so we played with hepcat at the whiskey Man, it, it's like a dream for, for a Canadian, you know, young ska band, ska band like this. I mean, here you are hitting fucking, you know, the West Coast in the States with all these fantastic people that are really well known. It's not like you're coming in cold either, you know? Yes. You know, like at the time, California was really the holy grail for the third wave scene. And, you know, New York and Boston and Chicago had strong scenes as individual cities with a strong scene and there was some type of purported rivalry between new york and boston which are pretty close together really bim scalabim was the big band in boston although there was another band more in that all kinds of music but called bob harvey okay who, well and the bostons obviously right weren't they around right in those years as well yeah they were around and i yes uh we at the time they were not really actively how to say it in the scene right they had right. been featured on an all boston scott compilation which is how i heard of them um, okay. but bands like bim scalabim and the toasters were part of uh, a network of bands mm -hmm. that i in my understanding at the time the bostones were not part of that right we did right. play They're with them early on in toronto where who was it this we had this promoter called elliot lefko and don't know him. he was a big deal in in alternative music in toronto uh in the 80s and one of his i guess assistants um you might know jeff cohen i uh, yeah i believe so i believe so he's jeff, still he's still working and booking stuff yes so jeff i don't know what elliot does anymore but at the time Jeff was kind of uh, Elliot's right-hand man. Elliot had been the man for a long time, and he was really one of those, he knew what was happening. He had his finger on the pulse of really cool stuff that wasn't mainstream, or it was happening in the U.S., 
And people didn't really know about it in Canada yet, but he knew about it. So he brought the Boston's up to Toronto, and I think that it might have been 89. And okay, yeah. he hired King Apparatus to be main support because we had a big following and nobody knew the Boston's. Like, I knew who they were. Yeah. And so we, we played an Elmo show with them where we were main support. And I would say there might have been 12 or 15 people there who had heard of the Boston's before, but they were on it. By that time, they, they rolled up with road cases and roadies and <laughs> all the stage attire. Everything was in place. And they were mm-hmm. an amazing band. They were really tight. But they were going out, I think, more in the punk circuit. Yeah, that makes sense. And they were the ska circuit. Yeah, I think they've always built their own scene, I guess. Right. And they worked, uh, I don't care what anyone thinks about the music, they earned everything that they made because they worked hard. As did fans like the Toasters. Mm -hmm. They were relentless. And in a time that was pre-internet, being relentless and going out and rocking a room was really what a band did to to be a band and so i was we didn't like bro down with boston's on that occasion i think i met a couple of them briefly now i know some of the people better but mm-hmm. um they kind of breezed in and they're like oh like local bands da, 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 da. you know they were yeah they were much <laughs> well more, they're in that tour mindset as well right <laughs> yeah they were much more like pro than we were at the time um, uh-huh. We were just like local heroes. And uh, that's so, awesome. But at that time, California really had a strong reputation. And of course, you know, bands like Untouchables, Fishbone, mm-hmm. Operation Ivy, probably like the, the earliest California bands that still people understand okay, these were crucial bands for the California scene starting. And it's funny, when I think of Operation Ivy, I always uh, get the impression that they were bigger after the band than during the band. You know what I mean? Like, they've become this cult thing that everybody knows Operation Ivy now, you know? But I think it's then, true. It went while they were doing it. I don't think that was really the case. It's true. Um, I think that it was a posthumous release, that CD that collected their early recordings, which is like the classic item. And right. it's awesome. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That music is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were, they were part of that Gilman Street scene, which was more a punk scene than a ska scene. It was before my time in California, but that's my grasp of it. Yeah. Gilman was a punk club, and Operation Ivy was kind of, they were a punk band with a little bit of ska in the mix, mm-hmm. in a way that no one else sense. was doing. That's fair. But I don't think that they were connected with the ska scene that kind of came up around me and I, I could be wrong with some of this, but this is my feeling about it. When bands like let's go bowling started or the skeletons, those bands were inspired by two tone and seeing the direct influence uh, or example of bands like fishbone, mm-hmm. but not really like following in the footsteps of operation Ivy starting around the same time. I would say, I think that operation Ivy started in 80, Six, King Abra yeah. started in '87. I think oh, that's that close. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's I really close cool because actually, was around the same. If I listen to King Apparatus and, and Operation Ivy, say back to back or whatever, I definitely see a similarity, especially in the guitar work where it's you have the rock and roll guitar over ska, which is a style I really like. Which I, I think that era, you know, 
kind of probably right. opened the door to that style. And I, I think that's a whole different style of ska that I totally loved anyway, personally, because I find live, it has a lot of energy, you know, but, uh, Man, you, I, I love your knowledge on all this. This is fantastic as, stuff. As far as the guitar thing, I would say within King Apparatus, like Sam and I were the first two members. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a common friend. We went to different schools, but both in London. He went to Fanshawe College where he studied music industry arts, which was they, people there were training to be studio producers and engineers. And yeah. I was at Western doing English and philosophy. Um, so we had a, a common friend a guy I knew from Western who was a camp summer camp buddy of Sam's. And I, I said to this guy, yeah, hey, I want to start a band. And he's like, Oh, I know this guitarist. He wants to start a band. And so he introduced us. We jammed and I, right away, I really dug Sam's playing. I'm like, so that's how that started. Um, and he, so as the first instrumentalist in the band, his sound was a big part of creating the sound of King apparatus. But it really worked in my mind's eye of the kind of band I wanted to, to have because I was a huge specials fan. Yeah. Of radiation and lead guitar, rock and lead guitar over ska music, mm -hmm. I really took from the specials. Um, so there was I, a precedent I totally get before it. ska punk, but, but Operation Ivy really had a unique sound and they spawned a whole wave of, of acts. Well, it's interesting, just the background of, of that style, too. You know, because uh, I, I always go back to, like, Chuck Berry meets Ska. I try to bring that okay. element in there. But yeah. before, you, you had mentioned uh, about the Peter Tosh and the Johnny B. Good, right? And which, again, even the leads in that are very much, like, the rock and roll style leads with the, the bends and, the, you know, it, basically yeah. the Chuck Berry riff played really slowly, right? And... Uh, so all of a sudden, I'm making this path of that style, whether to it's the Peter Tosh reggae to the Op Ivy to the King App, you know, and then, you know, to what some other bands are doing today and stuff. And that's the line I'm tracing in my head as I'm listening to you. Do you know, you're aware that uh, there's a reissue, but um, the first Whalers album, Catch a Fire, yeah. they did a reissue with the Jamaican recordings and then the eventual release it was a double didn't release. it just come out like a like i'm talking a week ago or two weeks ago no no I, this okay, might be out ten, I 10 years or something okay so the story of that was and this relates to rock guitar and reggae mm -hmm. which became a thing like the sound of roots reggae by the early 80s incorporated rock guitar absolutely uh and the reason for that is so the whalers were uh in the early, in the 60s, they were big stars in Jamaica, but off of the island, obscure. Like, mm -hmm. there were a lot of British uh, Jamaicans. So people, some people there would know. And British people tend to know Jamaican music because there were so many Jamaicans there and they were working in the same factories and living on the same block. And Jamaicans turned the stereo up and people heard. They dance. <laughs> you know, walking down the street, somebody's like blasting from his flat. Jamaicans got the reggae going. They hear it. Mm -hmm. They know it. Um, so Chris Blackwell was a white Jamaican, started Island Records. Yeah. And so he knew about Island Records started. It, it really spread out to what it was later, but it started as an, a way to bring Jamaican music to the Jamaican audience in Britain. And so an early signing for him were the whalers because he knew they were they were stars in jamaica 
Yeah. And their first release was Catch a Fire. So they'd already done all those um, Lee Perry recordings, like the Small Axe, Soul Rebel era reggae, which was so that working with Lee Perry had brought them to the Barrett Brothers version of the Whalers, because the Barrett Brothers right. had been in the Upsetters, Lee Perry's studio band, at the time that Lee Perry brought the Whalers into Black Ark. Makes perfect sense, and, yeah. And then the Whalers got signed, and their most recent stuff had been what they'd been doing with Lee Perry. So they got signed to Island, and then like, okay, uh, thanks, Lee, and we're taking your band. <laughs> and then, so what was, I can't remember what it's called, uh, this edition of Catch a Fire, but there's, uh, Chris Blackwell gave the Whalers, I think it was five grand, 5,000 pounds to make a record. They gave them a budget. And people are like, oh, you're crazy. You're giving them money. You'll never see anything. But they made the recordings, the foundation of the recordings that became Catch a Fire along the, the model, the template of what was happening in their sound already. Some of those tunes were direct re-recordings of the Lee Perry sessions. Like okay. not all, they didn't all make it onto Catch a Fire, but things like Small Axe, which I think yeah. was on um, Burning, the next album. Uh, yeah, I believe you're you right. know it's almost note for note, like the same arrangement that Lee Perry worked on. But up. a lot of those Jamaican songs were right. I, I mean, you know, sometimes you'd speed it uh, up, yeah. a little twiddle here and there. It's a it's a brand new song, man. Versions, <laughs> love it. True. So the Whalers delivered to Chris Blackwell a version of what would be Catch a Fire. And he made a record uh, man decision, like, I want to market this band internationally. I need to give it something that the, the mainstream Western ear can connect with because it's, it's definitely foreign music mm -hmm. to a rock ear. If, the, yeah. if you've never heard reggae, it's, it's odd. Absolutely. Especially at that time, those women. And then you put the visual in. <laughs> you know, you put the visuals in as well, right? <laughs> so Chris Blackwell brought in American musicians, session musicians, who played organ and all that slide guitar, and the, the rockin' guitar that's on those early uh, on Catch a Fire were Nashville guys, ah, white guys, ah. Americans, who yeah. were hired to adorn, embellish the recordings that the Jamaicans had delivered that Chris Blackwell thought it needs some American sound to it for Americans to get it. So that's why, and of course it really succeeded because they had now a big record company. And by that time, Island Records was like working with Steve Winwood and mm -hmm. major artists of all genres, but yeah. mainstream. And so they were kind of, Island did a bunch of Jamaican artists. They did some, stuff for toots you know in in that era as well the 70s 80s some classic albums were on island and they had a sub-label mango that was yep. more oriented to jamaican music so that the success of the whalers with this sound that incorporated rock guitar was why now jamaicans making music in that era who wanted to be successful which everybody does they're like we need this rock guitar because that's what yeah. people are grooving on and 
So that's the history of why rock guitar hit reggae so but it's, hard. It, it's super interesting, you know, like uh, th that whole topic, because I was uh, uh, talking with Vic a couple of weeks ago about this. Um, one of the things I love about whether it's reggae or ska is that I always find it, it's such a style of music that it's easy to incorporate whatever flavor you want to it. And at mm -hmm. the times if they're listening to soul, okay, it's soul ska and you can make that flip. Whether it's rocking Chuck Berry style ska, you can make that twist or get jazzy or even the modern stuff, you know, with the dance hall and stuff. But it's always, it's just this form of music that you can put anything in, inside. It's like a, you know, it's like a blank slate of pizza. You can put whichever ingredient and it still works, right? right? And I think that's probably why I love this music so far. And when it comes to guitar in the reggae scene, especially, you really see it exactly like you said. And then if you carry on in time, the 80s hit. Next thing you know, it was almost like, you know, metal, hair metal, guitar leads over reggae and yeah. stuff like that. You know, they just won't stop, man. Well, there's an irony in the history of that as well, that the rock guitar, the rock influence on reggae became so strong. So before there was a Jamaican recording industry, it was all sound system. Right. Uh, dances where Duke Reed and Prince Buster and Coxon, and there were a lot of sound systems with sound system operators. Um, they would be running dances, spinning records, uh, selling red stripes, selling food. Have you ever been to one of these parties? I've never been to Jamaica. Oh, no? But okay, yeah. No. Oh, you should come down but I've been. I should. I've been to many um, Jamaican events, though, uh, yeah, yeah. in different places. But I haven't been to Jamaica. I kind of feel like it's, I have a golden impression of it, and I know the truth of it is much harsher than that. I'm like, I don't want to go. First of all, there's not a lot of interest, I think, in Jamaica for the old music, which is what my focus is. That's like, oh, that's grandpa's music. You know, young Jamaicans are not listening to that music. No, that's true. Except that, like, like where I, where I stay down, man. You and Vic should both come down with me. My parents are okay. there half the year right now because our buddies uh, has this place, and my mom rents out seven cabins on Half Moon wow. Beach, which is twenty minutes outside of Negril. All right. Wow. Okay. So you got your 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 cabin life there, where you jam acoustic at night, right? Okay. You see where I'm doing. Yeah, but yeah. my dad does this at least five, six nights a week there. And, and you know, so just that night you, you jam. But then you go into town. Do you know a Luddy Sams? I know the name. Okay. I well, think. the Rolling Stones used to cover all his songs. All right. Okay. The Drifters. Now, he huh? was the singer for the Drifters. So the, oh, okay. he, has, he has a bar in, uh, in the grill. All right. Oh, cool. Called Drifters with the best backing band you know. And uh, they'll, they'll have you get up on stage and sing some songs and play your tunes as well. You know, kind of that the guitar fun. player will pass you the guitar and then, you, you, you know, don't throw yeah. changes around, but what key are we in? You know what I mean? And go, you know, and, and it's beautiful. That sounds and awesome. They, they have a bunch of people that are loving the old ska, the old reggae cool. and ska out, out there. And it's amazing. But what's really amazing to it is like, you know, you try to throw them a twist or something, maybe bring in something pretty rocking or something or with a different mentality of maybe where you come from for your city life or whatever like that and they're open to it man like that mm. they just love it it's like oh that's new and and that's what i love about it and again it brings back to this thing that what i love about this music is you can incorporate anything inside it no matter right. what emotion or whatever and you do it really well my friend so i'm gonna run i'm gonna run it back to the sound system yeah moment. so those people running sound systems were not musicians. They obviously were music lovers, but they were entrepreneurs, first and foremost. Um, 
So they were running these dances to make money. And the uh, music was good for them when it brought people in the door. And mm -hmm. they were competing the various sound systems. So having unique uh, music that the other sound system didn't have was what drew, drew people to your dance. So this is not only pre-internet, it's pre uh, most people having electricity. Yeah, man. <laughs> and they didn't, a lot of people have record players in the 50s, you know, or any time after World War II. Um, what people were playing on the sound systems were American R&B, almost exactly. exclusively, because there was no Jamaican recording industry in the 50s. Uh, now, the, the legend goes, there's lots of legends uh, <laughs> about Jamaican music history. <laughs> Never let the truth spoil a good story. So the sound system operators would take trips up to America to buy records and bring them back so they could get the exclusive stuff or they'd strike deals even as far back as like World War II where American sailors would pull into port in Jamaica and they're like, come back, bring some records next time and we'll buy them. And they, that's how they got American music. And because there was such competition to have uh, exclusive titles, you couldn't let the other sound system know what you had. So they would often scratch out the label copy on the record because they would, right, right. one sound system would send spies to look over the, <laughs> the selector's shoulder to see he's, this is what he's spinning. That's why they'd scratch it off. I love and it. So the, the story goes that when rock and roll re kind of replaced R&B in America, the supply of American R&B dwindled. So the sound system operators were forced to make their own recordings which is when they started recording Jamaicans. And then you'll hear it in the very earliest ska recordings. It's more like boogie woogie, like doom, 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 doom. It's not like the ska that it became. And they were trying to copy American R&B. Uh, that you hear the, some of the ballads in the three, four, doom, 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 doom. Oh, you broke my heart. You know, pure on ballads. And they're yeah, trying right. to make, they're trying to do their own version of American music. At a certain point, it caught traction and uh, the sound we know now as Scott, like more of the Lloyd Nibbs, Scatolites feel of Scott. It's, but it took a few years, you know. The sound of Scott at the end of the 50s was different from like 62, was different to 64. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was all about what were people digging because the dances were happening all the time. At least every week, a sound system operator would have a dance. So you needed a new tune for next week. Yeah. And once, this, once the recordings uh, started happening, it was the sound system operators who would rent studio time at whatever studio was available. There were two or three in Kingston. And uh, they would hire the musicians. And then they would... <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. As I was saying before, they'd audition singers. And they think, I like, I like your song and you, you come in on Tuesday, you show up, he's got the musicians there. And then that desire to keep too. it fresh is amazing. You know what I mean? Like keep it so fresh. It's only, you know, been recorded three days ago. I love it. Yeah. And they, they obviously had some type of pressing facility with that they could access in a timely fashion. So they would um, literally record maybe do an audition on Sunday, bring the guy in the studio, make a track sometime Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday by, by the dance on Friday, 
they had a test pressing to spin. And this was like the true market research of it. If there were a lot of recordings made that they put it on and if people didn't respond, they didn't even play the whole way through. They put on something because they want people up, up, up. And if yeah. something's like, if something's like, uh-huh, then like, well, screw that. How about this? And like, yeah. Because they just <laughs> wanted to, they wanted it to work. It needed to be commercially viable. So Absolutely. As much as there is a purism in a, a certain mentality, like say um, in my community of modern retro ska musicians, there's a purist vibe that exists, mm -hmm. which is, there's good and bad to it, both. But it's like, oh, is it artistically pure? At the time, Jamaicans were like, are people digging this? And yeah. that is the merit. Like, are they buying it? Are they can, they're buying the ticket to come here, replay it? Is it commercially successful? That was the, the, the measure of what was happening. So it, it, there's another irony there, because sometimes people like, oh. It hasn't changed at all. I mean, when, in the 90s, when ska got mainstream, there were bands that adjusted their sound, you know, intending to be more marketable. Mm -hmm. Or there were bands that had never been ska bands, and they're like, oh, ska's hot, and ska bands are getting, so we're going to start playing yeah. some ska. And it was like a calculated business decision. on Absolutely. And so there, of course, in the, the scene of ska bands that had been slugging it out since the 80s in a scene where there was a different culture to ska fandom back then. Mm -hmm. It really, if you got into ska in the 80s, it was because of Two-Tone. And Two-Tone came with not only a sound and a fashion, but a sense, sensibility and a set of values that the, the anti-racism was the, the most prominent thing. But it was, I would say, a little more in the socialist-leaning thing. Like, a lot of the stuff was coming from Depression-era Britain in the 60s, uh -huh. 70s, where unemployment was super high, and it was these songs, and there was a story of working-class reality. In the same way, Jamaican recordings are often the stories of Jamaican working-class reality. And this, the attitudes people in those communities carried were represented in the music made by them and for them it was really a community thing jamaican music spoke to jamaicans because it spoke about the life of jamaicans and uh the same way two-tone spoke about the life of young british people in a time where there was no jobs mm -hmm. and then in the 90s and I'll, before I move forward with the 90s, I'll put the caveat in there. Both in the 60s with Jamaican music and ska and in the 70s, early 80s with two-tone ska, again, there was a true agenda to be commercial. Oh, for sure, for sure. Like, like I said about Jamaica, it wasn't like, oh, we're trying to make the best art. And you know, like, we were trying to make a record that people cheer when I throw it on and they buy another beer and stay in our dance instead of going to the other dance and mm -hmm. buying a beer there. But see, and that's beautiful. They got it right, though. They did get it right. I mean, if it feels good, the people will spread it around. Right. Right. True. If, if something is good quality or of a quality, people will respond to it. Mm -hmm. But then there's something of, well, and Two-Tone 
there were criticisms. I didn't really grasp it at the time, but say from Jamaicans of this new ska music, like, that's not ska music. In the same way, I would say people that got into ska through two-tone later would hear some more third wave ska. They'd be like, that's not really ska. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of context and where you entered. But there was definitely a time in the 90s where it was possible for a band to be a radio success in America and have major success, you know. And a lot of times that meant or went along with, I'll say it that way, mm -hmm. de-emphasizing ska, for instance, like No Doubt began right. as a ska band and they were playing bills around Southern California with Fishbone and in the ska scene. And they were making ska music straight up, of course. Mm -hmm. And they, to give credit, they always show a lot of respect and love for ska music. But by the mid nineties, uh, you know, Tragic Kingdom, yeah, that yeah. was not, that, they were not a ska band. They were uh, a mainstream band aiming for and achieving a level of success commercially beyond what ska yeah. was achieving. They're the perfect example, like, like completely because they're on a large scale. But I see it right. also in, in, you know, quote, smaller bands or whatever as well that start off in ska and kind of evolve into punk and, you know, or whatever direction they take, you know, think, but, you know, really with that mentality of we're trying to get bigger than ska. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you hear that type of thing. And me, personally. It I was mean, interesting. Like, in the 90s, there had been a strong growing of the ska scene organically through a lot of bands, getting in bands and slugging it out. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I can remember really well the first time we got, we played Edmonton. There might have been right. 30 people there. And I still know some of those people. Because when you were one of the 30 people who knew what was up, enough to see King Apparatus the first time we showed up in Edmonton, you, you felt that music in a way, like it was part of you more than like, oh, I like ska music. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I was trying to get at that through the story about the 90s where if you got into ska through two-tone, you self-identified as, if you want to call it a rude boy or whatever, but as a ska fan, it meant like, I not only like this music, I stand for a set of values yeah. and I'm part of a community that in common we share this outlook and sensibility and values. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the mid nineties that had really evaporated because it's just how things happened. It got over the course, I would say of by, by nine, end of 93, definitely the ska scene in America was bubbling up strong. Mm -hmm. Bands hadn't, connected with the mainstream yet but by like 95 time bomb for rancid was a massive radio hit yeah. and hundreds of new ska bands and many many thousands of new ska fans who were 13 15 and were hearing about ska for the first time because they heard time bomb mm -hmm. or they heard real big fish and that was their entry point and no Criticism, those things are what they are. Absolutely. They, man. Were, they were lacking in that thing about two tone that we are a community with a set of values and we, we self identify 
at a deep level with it. Whereas it, be, and it's always about moving people and getting them shaking their butts. Yeah, man. Sky's always dance music. So in the 90s, it was that too. But of course, in the 60s and even in the 80s, I would say there was an aesthetic of how to dance to Sky. And there was a pride people would take in being a good dancer. Yeah, I mean, in Toronto, there were, there were people and you're like, he's a good dancer. And he had <laughs> status in the community because that guy, he really, he knew how to skank, but he would have a <laughs> style, this, this person or that. But by the end of, by like mid 90s, when a bunch of kids that heard about Scott three months ago are seeing a band that doesn't really have a strong connection culturally to that history, but it's high energy, fun music. And they're just like flailing around and calling it skanking. Uh, that was, I think, <laughs> it was an interesting time because there was, for people who had come up through the ska scene, through this, you, there, you get into it, you have no expectation that it's going to be successful because even Two-Tone, those bands that were successful, they lasted those bands three years. Madness <laughs> might be an exception. Madness, yeah. again, remodeled as a pop band. They were always well, pop, but they really stepped down the sky over time. Mm -hmm. And Bad Manners wasn't like a continuous band. It was Buster with guys. Right. Um, so there was no precedent for, oh yeah, this is a good career choice, getting mm -hmm. to ska music. Because yes. so if you were making ska music in, in the 80s or the early 90s, it was because you were all about it. And so you got to Cleveland and there were 40 people there. That's what it was, you know? Well, you married the and lifestyle, right? And those 40 people in Cleveland were all about it in the same way you were. It was really a community. And you'd show up as a band in these cities. If you were like me, I was all about it. Um, not more than other people in King Apparatus. They were all like, well, we're in a ska band and we like it, but... <laughs> Like I was more like a convert when I first heard it or whatever, more yeah. fervent. And uh, there are a lot of people like that in the ska scene, especially back in those days. And so the shows could be small and to say it didn't matter. Big shows are always better, but the, that there was not a huge audience for it didn't discourage bands from slugging it out and getting in a crappy van and driving for hours to get somewhere. And if there's 75 people there, you're like, that was great. But that, that is the beautiful thing of the, the ska scene. You know what I mean? Because, it, it, yes, it'll get bigger and grow, you know, bigger than the root and then, you know, come back down to the root again. But it's that root that is there that, that I think is why people enjoy marrying the ska scene and having just mm -hmm. a social system through it as well. You know, people that, like, say, might share like values, you know, and it, it's beautiful. And, Chris, I can't thank you enough for the stories that you shared with me today. It's beautiful to see your face, my brother. My pleasure. Well, thanks for we having will, me on. Man, I'll ring you up another time and uh, I can't wait till all this craziness is done so maybe we can get together and play some guitars. Let's do it. You're a beautiful man. Don't change, brother. Peace uh, out. Thanks, you too. Peace. Boom! Oh, 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 oh. Kim and don't know she is.